You're watching The Breakfast Club. Morning, everybody. It's DJ NV Angela Yee, Charlamagne the God. We are The Breakfast Club. We got a special guest in the building. Yes, sir. Dr. Umar Johnson. Peace and love, family. Glad Welcome to back. be back. Peace, Good to brother. see everyone. What's, what's on your mind today, man? Uh, All is well. Just came back from China and Japan. Okay. My first visits over there speaking with the African China community. China and Japan? And Japan. Really? I spent a week in Japan, uh, Tokyo and Nagoya. Okay. And then they Nagoya's flew me. Dope. Yeah, dope Nagoya too. is dope. I really enjoyed it. And then I went to Shanghai and Beijing. It was bittersweet. Sweet because it was good seeing African people in a different setting from America. Mm. Okay, I had never been to China. So it was it was very good to see that. The bitter side is the fact that we're not treated well over there. Really? I'm not really? surprised at that. What do you mean? But I was taken aback by the extent to which racism is practiced against blacks in China wow. openly. Really? So in America, we have a civil rights culture. Mm -hmm. So racism, you have to tuck it under. It has to be covert. It has to be covert. Yeah. And China is very much so overt. So like what kind, kind of things happen? I've never been to China. I've always wanted to go. But so in Japan too or just China? I'm going to say China. Not so much yeah, in, cause I, in cause Japan. Japan they, they show a lot of love. They yeah. love our culture. More so really China. Culture. Yeah, because yeah. America has a very close relationship with Japan. Mm. They're the third leg of the trilateral commission. So the Japanese are considered the white men of Asia. Mm. So we're speaking of China in particular. There were certain nightclubs that we couldn't go into. Really? Oh, yeah. And they will tell you no black people are allowed here. What? There's certain sections of uh, certain neighborhoods you can't live in. So, for example, if they don't want you in a certain section in, in Brooklyn, uh, they will just use clever real estate tactics to keep you out. Absolutely. Okay, i.e. your credit ain't good enough or the bank didn't approve mm -hmm. your loan. Mm -hmm. They don't have to or do that in China. Exactly. They're direct with it. They're direct with it. We don't want black people here. Why? That's crazy because I know a lot of people like in the garment industry, they wow. end up mm -hmm. having to go to China. Like a lot of people I know, they yes. go there for long periods of time to because that's where the factories are and yes. so on and so forth. Is it black people? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I've never heard anybody say that before. Oh, without question. And the irony is what? Africa is rolling out the red carpet for China. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're taking over the Caribbean. They're taking over Africa. They're taking over the Caribbean. They're all in South Africa. In fact, Mandarin is now an official language in the Republic of South Africa. Mm -hmm. Zulu isn't. Kosa isn't. So the indigenous languages are not taught in the school, but Mandarin is. That speaks to the influence of China, but they don't roll out the red carpet for us in China. You know, wow. it's interesting, though, when you think about it. You think about historically over the years when you go into Chinese establishments and the way they treat us. I mean, that's why old dog smoke dude in menace. You know what I'm saying? Like, let's be clear. I didn't even I never put two and two together, but yeah. Well, my yeah. dad's Chinese and... <laughs> I mean, look, my whole side of my family is Chinese. Mm -hmm. I will say this, though. My grandparents weren't happy about my dad marrying a black woman, and they definitely didn't go to the wedding. Really? Yes. Okay. Well, well, you just proved our point again. But, Let me. but <laughs> they're, and they're from China, but my aunts and uncles all are fine because, you know, they okay. were born here. Mm -hmm. So it's different. Now, That's remember right. now, when you travel throughout Asia, okay, particularly when you go to Southeast Asia, they get darker skinned. For example, in Vietnam, mm -hmm. there's Vietnamese who look just like us. Yeah. They have the, the Asian phenotype, okay, the face structure, but the skin tone and the hair is just like us. I remember speaking to some elders who served in Vietnam. They said, we brought some of those prisoner awards on the truck, and they look like they could have been from North Philly or South Bronx. Mm. They look just like us. The Cambodians look just like us. Even in China, yeah. there's certain places you can go where the Chinese are black skinned with nappy hair. Again, the Asian face structure, but totally African because we're the first to settle China. There's Remember so many Buddha. Chinese Jamaicans, though. There's a lot of Chinese Jamaicans. Yes. There's a lot. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. So so remember now, Buddha comes from uh, India and goes into China. 
and I had a chance to visit a Buddhist temple, but Buddha was a black man. And when you look at any of the early statues of Buddha, you clearly see the locks and the twisties. He doesn't get the modern uh, phenotype of the Asian until the past 100 years or so. But any ancient statue of Buddha clearly shows him as an African. Same thing with Krishna, the god of the Vedic tradition. Krishna means the black one and Buddha means the black face. So clearly there's an African origin of Asia, but there's an African origin no matter where you go in the world because we're the first to build every civilization everywhere. So I don't care if you're in Mexico, if you're in Europe, who were the first Europeans? The Grimaldis of Africa who migrated 20 to 40,000 years ago Mm -hmm. and in the process of climatology lost the pigmentation, the deep pigmentation that we have. So no matter where you go, we were the first people there. Is there any place in the world we can go and not experience racism? No, not at all. Even the Caribbean? Not even, not even in the Caribbean. In mm. fact, when I was in Jamaica, I keynoted the Garvey celebration last summer, Ocho Rios. The Chinese pretty much own Jamaica. I mean, the Jamaican government is giving them concessions, land concessions. They're building hotels, beach resorts. Uh, they're building two schools for, for the Japanese, excuse me, for, for the Jamaicans. And what the Jamaicans have to give them in turn is the right to certain lands, the right to certain waterways. And if it doesn't stop... Jamaica, ironically, the land of Marcus Garvey and Bob Marley will be the first Chinese colony in the Caribbean. Wow. It's getting bad. And you know why it's happening? Because the black bourgeoisie leadership in both Africa and the Caribbean, they don't have to live with the consequences of the economic decisions they make. So if I'm the president of Jamaica, okay, and China says, listen, we're going to give you a million dollars in retirement. We're going to build you a retirement home, Mm -hmm. but we want this, this, and this. And you can loan as much money as you want. You can borrow as much money from the Bank of China as you want. I'm going to be set by the time I leave office. But what about my nation? Jamaica will be struggling for the next 50 and 75 years because of bad economic decisions from selfish leaders today. Mm. And that's the problem in Africa, and it's the problem in the Caribbean islands. No, that's true. I remember, you know, I, I love going to Anguilla, and a couple of years ago, just one of the guys on the island was like, the Chinese taking over everything here. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Yes, indeed. And we they were just are- talking about when we were in, I was in the Bahamas and everybody got mad about this. The Bahamar, they said the Chinese people were building that hotel. Well, you got to remember, China is overpopulated. Mm-hmm. So it's always looking for opportunities to dump some of its excess population. Right. And you know what's so sad? Chinese will come to South Africa poor with nothing. And in three years, they're owning two and three major businesses. Because what happens is when the Chinese come, they employ their own. Mm -hmm. They don't employ indigenous African labor. But this is exactly what the heads of state tell black people. Let the Chinese come to Jamaica. Let them come to South Africa. They're going to give you guys jobs. The jobs never come. They bring their own population, which makes sense from their perspective because they have so many people Mm -hmm. that need a place to go outside of China. So they're showing up broke and going back home as millionaires. I was just thinking that. Have you ever went to a Chinese food store and seen... Anything other than a Chinese person? Yeah, I never. Have. I've never. I never have. In America. Or a Chinese restaurant in Brooklyn. You can really. Yeah, well, I've seen a I've seen a kosher Chinese yes, restaurant. I, like in Teaneck, it's a kosher a halal, with, the, with the Chinese Jewish mm-hmm. people that yeah. own the Chinese. Yeah. Mm. It's rare sense. though. But the question, envy, is why is that? Mm. And that's because every culture comes to America to build an economic empire for themselves. The Chinese, East Indian, Arab, Latino, whoever comes to America comes to build a cultural empire. Everyone except African-Americans. So when you travel the country, you got a little Italy in every major city. Right. You got a Chinatown in every major city. You see, you even see little Cambodia's popping up now around the you United States. You got a Martin States. Luther King in every city, too. Exactly. Well, yeah, you, you, got, no, you, living on you got a Martin Luther King Jr. <laughs> street. Yeah, street. You have a Martin Luther King yeah. Jr. street. Right. But there's no Africa town. There's no place in black America you can go and find the four essential institutions needed for a community. Bank, school, 
supermarket hospital. And you know why that's ironic? Last year, Black America in 2016, we spent $2 billion on Air Jordans, $4 billion on liquor and alcohol, $600 million on fast food, and we spent, we bought twice the amount of Mercedes Benzes as white America, although white America has twice the wealth of black folk. Mm. So the question becomes, why, what is it about the Mercedes Benz that makes it so attractive to African Americans even when they can barely afford it? And it's because it's a status symbol. That's yeah. all. And one thing we know about oppressed people, when you can't enjoy true freedom, you surround yourself with the symbols, symbols of, of that freedom. Absolutely. And that's why the Louis bag is so important. That's why our children will care for, kill for Air Jordans. It's not the sneaker. It's what it represents. Right. And if I believe I'm worthless, that means I can only add value to myself Let by what I put you. on my body as opposed to what I put in it. How do we stop that? How do we slow that down? Because since I was a kid, those symbols, I mean, when I was a kid, it wasn't a Mercedes. It was the Cadillac. Yes. You, know you don't I mean? feel like that anymore, though. I think I think the, the world I think still you, does. You, you've been, I don't. Yeah, you've been right. exposed to like I, knowledge. And... I just buy what I like now. But mm-hmm. when I was a kid, I wanted that car because it was a status symbol. I wanted those sneakers because it was a status symbol. You know what I mean? But how do we get back to the part where you know it's not like that? You're gonna have to re-engineer the mind. Let's go to college. We all went to college. Mm-hmm. Remember in not college, well, one, well, not minus okay. one. Okay, <laughs> but you've been on campuses yeah, and you yeah. notice how fly the black undergraduates dress, right? Right. But then when it comes time to pay that tuition. Half of them got to take off a semester because they ain't got the money. Right. But look how you drive and no, look how you. No, we didn't drive. We didn't um, dress fresh at my school at all. We all had on sweats every day and hoodies and like sn- we. Wasn't I went like- to a PWI and now up in PA we got Lincoln, we got Cheney, but I've been around. Yeah, I went to Wesley they kinda, and we definitely dressed okay because now <laughs> I would say your school was unique. Because in most it's places now, you went to an HBCU. Oh, the Hampton. We you, had, rem- you know, the females dressed up and then the females exactly. dressed up. You know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah, it was what it was. And I remember we had a financial aid seminar by the director of admissions. And he said, I don't understand y'all. <laughs> he said, y'all got money for change. Y'all got money for powerhouse. Y'all got money for Jordans. Y'all got money for nice cars. But you ain't got the money to pay your tuition. And you know what that's about? It's about priorities. priorities. Right. Mm-hmm. I was at a home ownership seminar. And guess what the white guy said? He was from a bank. And he was honest. I agreed with him. He said, listen, it's not always about racism, although that was incorrect. But the point that he made next was correct. He said, the problem is when y'all come to us for a loan, when African-Americans walk into a white bank for a loan, what normally disqualifies you isn't even your credit so much or your employment history. It's your priorities. You often buy your car before you buy your house, even if you have a half decent income. If you already bought the caddy truck, the Benz, the Mercedes, and you're coming to look for a home after the car, I know that if you fall into tough economic times and you have to make a decision between your mortgage or your car note, you're going to pay your car note first. Yeah, because I ain't bringing people over to the house, but they're going to see me pulling up all the time. So exactly. I keep that truck, man. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But, but, you know, not for nothing, that's, that's the way of thinking. You know what I mean? When I mm-hmm. first bought my, my car, I was thinking, nobody going to see my house. They gonna see my car when I pull up. Exactly. Which, which I've always thought the exact opposite, man. That's so crazy. Like I've always thought I'd rather have a nice ass crib, and uh, it don't matter what I pull up. When I was eighteen years old. Well, that's old, mature man. thinking. But yeah. And that is not the predominant mode of no, thought for right. African Americans. You're right. Mm-hmm. You're right. You understand. Now, our last conversation last year was just before the Donald Trump election. Remember that? Mm-hmm. And y'all asked me that I think he would win, and, and said I said yes. Hillary was the choice, but I think he may win because he's changing. Okay, the trajectory for poor white America. Mm -hmm. And no one expected a filthy rich white man to garner so much support from poor white America. And so they ended up in the 11th hour 
having to give him that White House. Mm-hmm. Now, people ask me, what can we expect from a Donald Trump White House for black America? And the answer is real simple. You can expect exactly what you got from a Obama White House. Absolutely nothing. Mm-hmm. See, the Obama years, and it's our fault, not Obama's, because we took a time out from political social agitation, we created an atmosphere in America where it's safe to ignore black people because black people voluntarily ignored themselves for eight years. You know why? Because Barack was that caddy truck. He was a symbol. He was the symbol. And we was happy with the symbol. Without substance. Mm -hmm. And that's our problem. Now, remember, right after Trump got elected, it was a woman's march. Remember that? Mm -hmm. A lot of the same white women who put Trump in office turned around and marched. (laughs) It wasn't because they were against Trump. Remember, after the Dr. King assassination, America decided on a social policy of never allowing the black agenda to be primary ever again. So whenever a president is elected, they automatically give them a non-black minority issue that will pretty much uh, define their campaign. So with Barack Obama, it was the LBGT. So when he got elected, he went to war for the LBGTs as a way to eclipse our issues. As soon as Donald Trump got elected, you had the Women's March. Mm -hmm. So they're making it and you had the immigrant situation right after that. So the minority issues during the Trump administration is going to be female issues and immigrant issues. No time for black people. Mm. What do you what did you see that video that the NRA put out yesterday? No. It was a minute long clip and they basically it was like a I'm not even gonna call it a dog whistle. That was a loud ass foghorn. Mm-hmm. And they basically said, you know, you have people who are mar- you know, marching for women's equality and mm-hmm. against xenophobia and against homophobia, and the only way to stand firm against them is to keep a tight fist, and then it goes NRA. So basically it was just saying you have the right to bear arms against people who are marching for justice in this country. I, you got to watch it. It's only a minute I'm, long. Well, the NRA is the new face of the KKK. That's all it is. It's mm. the same organization, Man, a different acronym. It's only a minute okay. long. Okay. But a lot of that is coming on the heels of the Philando Castile verdict. Right. And I was actually in uh, Minneapolis while that trial was going on. And the verdict came the day after I left. I'm not surprised by the verdict. I you weren't surprised. I wasn't surprised by the verdict because, again, all legal decisions are based on precedent. Right. This not only goes back to Trayvon Martin. It goes back to Rodney King. Police have a culture of getting away with killing black folks. But what made the Philando case even more egregious is the fact that he had his seatbelt on. Yes. Mm-hmm. Did not meet mm-hmm. the description of the person they were seeking for. And did everything he was supposed to do. And had a four-year-old child right. in the back seat. And the officer still shot into the car seven times. It don't take seven bullets to stop anyone. And he walked. Now, what makes the situation even more criminal And more concerning for us is the officer in question was Latino. Why am I bringing that up? Because now we're moving away from the fact that white males can get away with killing black people. It's going to soon become totally comfortable and acceptable for anybody in America to get away with killing black people. This is the purge. The return of unapologetic white racist power. And America was founded on that. Mm. And one of the reasons we as African-Americans keep on getting the situation wrong is we keep on trying to separate our issues from American history. We'll look at what the Constitution guarantees, but the Constitution never included you. And one thing we mm. know about constitutional law is what? Anything included in the Constitution or in any law that does not reflect the intent of the founding fathers when they wrote the Constitution is automatically unconstitutional. You understand. So from a racist standpoint, the fact that black people are even considered citizens is unconstitutional because when Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton and George Washington sat down to write that document, did they ever intend for black people to be citizens of America? 
And the question is absolutely not. Well, here's the thing. What, what do, is there any solutions? Like, is there, and cause we know all the problems, we know all the issues, everybody woke. What do black people in America do? Here's the situation. Until we hate racism more than we hate each other, nothing's going to change. Mm. See, our problem is totally mental. We're a trillion dollar people. We got all the degrees we need, all the expertise. But you know what we're lacking? That cultural commitment to ourselves. We're the only group who don't have it. I was going to say that it almost feels like before we could fight racism, we have to fight self-hate. Yeah. You're going to have to have a civil war. Because we, we don't necessarily support our, ourselves. You know, Not we, at all. We don't help each other. We're we anti-African. And a lot of times when, you know, it's difficult because it always seems like it's always a scheme. It's always something mm-hmm. like we, we don't, don't trust each other. We don't other. trust each other at all. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's that's the problem. Like, you know, we can't form, we can't come together to fight racism or to fight anybody else if we can't trust our brother. You got two major issues supporting exactly what you said, an identity crisis and psychological homelessness, an identity crisis. Black people know they're not American, but they will fight like hell to protect that identity because they don't want to be identified with who they really are, and that's being African. We hate our Africanity. That's exactly why when I created the Unapologetically African movement, you see how quickly it morphed into Unapologetically Black. I never said Unapologetically Black. I said Unapologetically African. But even within the black consciousness community, we are still anti-African because deep down within our subconscious, we were all conditioned by the same superstructure that made us feel that Africa wasn't anything worth claiming. So I mean, the blackness is a step away from whiteness envy, right. but it's still 10 steps away from your Africanity. Raised like that. You know, as a kid, I'm not going to say my parents, but you always know when you, when you get out the hood, you're doing well. When you live with the white folks, you're doing well. Exactly. When you have a lawyer and your lawyer's white, you're doing well. When you have a white accountant, you're doing well. That, that's so kinda... your standard of excellence is outside of your community. Absolutely. And we're the only people who have a standard of excellence and ideal to achieve. That was created by our oppressor. See, my father used to always instill in me that, you know, black is beautiful. Or he'd be listening to James Brown say a lot, I'm black and I'm proud. Or we'd be wearing the African medallions, the Malcolm X hats. Like, he would always make me watch Elijah Muhammad videos, mm-hmm. Farrakhan videos. So I always thought black was the shit. But mm-hmm. when it came to business... My father, I would always hear my father say, that's why you can't do business with no niggas. You know what I'm saying? All the time. Like, that's, what, that's what would warp mm-hmm. my mentality when it came to doing business. But as far as like just black pride, I was always like proud yeah, yeah, and, to be and black. And that's the same thing. Yeah, you always had black pride, but when it came to business, it was like, I, I've heard it a million and one time. That's why you can't deal, no, do no yeah, job absolutely. with no niggas. In, in other words, what? The pride is superficial. It's intellectual, but it's not internalized. For example, we had a lot of great scholars. Take my ancestor, Frederick Douglass. Mm-hmm who knew their history, and still marry white women. How did that happen? Now, yes, he was an old man. I give him that. His first wife, Anna Murray Douglas, a blue, black, purple chocolate woman with nappy hair to 50 years, who birthed all of his children. It was after she died that he married the white woman, but nonetheless, he married a white woman. Had Frederick Douglass not married that white woman, he would be undisputably, undisputably, the greatest black leader that ever walked on American soil. But because of that one mistake that he made. But the question again is, why did he do that? Status because guess that what? That white woman was that caddy truck. No, you know what I think it was? What? I think to some extent, and I can say this, he suffered some of the Barack Obama, W.E.B. Du Bois syndrome. And that is when you, sometimes when you are mixed of mixed racial ancestry, which I don't even like to talk about because 300 years ago, there was no biracial or multiracial. If your father was white or your mother was white, you were still African. See, this is a modern thing, this whole multicultural movement. You never had that. 
Frederick Douglass was never called biracial. He was never called multiracial. He was called the N-word like the rest of us. There was no separation until the 20th century when America realized that we can use black people against themselves by giving them a new set of identities that allows them to disidentify from each other and identify more appropriately with us. But the point I'm making is the reason Frederick was able to do that is because deep down within himself, he may have still screamed for that validation. Now, you, you said mm. mistake. People are going to be mad at you by saying he made a mistake by, by marrying a white woman. Sure. Why, why do you say that's a mistake? Because shouldn't it be the man fell in love with who he fell in love with? No, because marriage is a political decision. Who you marry tells me who you are. When you marry a woman, you don't just marry her. You marry her culture. You marry her community. You marry her people. You understand? So when a black man marries a white woman, he's making several clear uh points and messages he's sending out to his own people because there's no greater symbol of your loyalty to your struggle than to marry a sister who shares that struggle loving versus virginia and y'all need to see the movie it just came out a few months ago mm -hmm. 1957 right about around that time a white man named loving from virginia sued up to the supreme court for the right to marry a black woman up until then several states still had anti-miscegenation law after they struck down anti-miscegenation law across the country, 1957 or 67, somewhere within there, black men have married outside their race envy more than the men of all other races in America put together as a percentage. How do you explain that? Is love purely blind? I disagree. Love is a function of your values and your priorities. I would argue the reason black men marry white women is because they wish they were white themselves and having the white man's prize, his queen, is a psychological symbol to myself that I am equal to him. So you can't be in love with white women and not at the same time feel inferior to white males. You know, it's uh, interesting. I, I like what you said about it. it is a political decision. You can't decision. separate love from politics. Love is the most political thing, just like we try to separate religion. So do you, do you feel that way if you marry a uh, Puerto Rican or Latino? It depends. Why or, does it depend? Or, or uh, you know, an Asian? It depends on consciousness because we know what? Cuba and Puerto Rico were the two largest slave ports up until the 1800s. The Garvey movement, the red, black, and green Garvey movement, of which I'm a member, do you know Cuba was the most thoroughly organized Garvey island in the Caribbean? Yes. You had more chapters of the red, black, and green in Cuba and in Puerto Rico than in almost any other well, island Fidel in the Fidel Castro Caribbean. loved black and brown people. Not, no. Fidel Castro was a racist. Really? Oh, yes. Oh, he was a socialist. And when he was challenged on the racism in Cuba, because, you know, the Caribbean has a very entrenched color hierarchy. When he was challenged on the racism in Cuba, you know what he said? We do have racism and we will have to deal with it. But we have to address socialism and capitalism first. So he put the issues of black oppression in Cuba second to the socialist agenda. Remember, Fidel Castro was an Italian. He was not Cuban. Fidel Castro, it was an Italian. He was a white man. He was not a Cuban. I didn't no. know that. So yes. why, why did he um, help so many uh, African countries? Because it was politically necessary and expedient. Remember, you do a lot of things out of diplomacy. I may not like Envy, but guess what? I need the backing of Envy's community to protect me because America trying to take me out. So if I can get black America and black Africa on my side, I already got Russia. That insulates me even more when it comes to America trying to kill my image in the public eye. Yeah, Cuba even allowed black people to go over there and get free, uh, go to medical school for free. Yes, a certain amount of them. Asada's over there. We appreciate that. Mm -hmm. uh, Robert Williams went over there. We appreciate that believe, without question. Yeah. But we're not talking about giving opportunity to individuals. 
We're talking about systematic opportunity. America gave me six degrees. America gave me a doctorate. I grew up with my father. I've never been to jail, but I'm one black man. Systematically, does America allow that? Castro did help a lot of our black revolutionaries, but that does not eliminate the fact that he was slow to move on the racism within his own cabinet. And it wasn't until he was challenged by those very same revolutionary Charlemagne that he began to address racism. Mm -hmm. Fidel Castro was an Italian, and I would argue a white supremacist nonetheless. Uh, you're going to be in Brooklyn today. Uh, tomorrow night, Friday. Today. Yes, sir. Gonna I'm going to be in Brooklyn today. I'm in Brooklyn today. Come on out. Brown Memorial Baptist Church, 52 Gates Avenue. Doors open up at 4, Power Lecture at 6, book signing to follow. And we're going to uh, we're gonna get a bunch of emails and a bunch of tweets on the YouTube video. And say, <laughs> Dr. Umar, how? Fidel ain't Italian and this and that. I'm like, look. Fidel Castro is an Italian. I, I'm not going to just, I don't know. I got to research. That's not yeah, even debatable. That's what I'm saying. I, I, he never claimed not that, to be. But that's what people don't realize when, you know, brothers like you come, we're having a conversation. Yes. So I'm going to just, we do the research later. Like that's what, mm -hmm. I think that's what any conversation should be about. And the black socialists are going to be angry at my comment. Do you want to know why? Why? Because we have an intellectual civil war within the Pan-Africanist community. You have Pan-African nationalists, which is what I am. That's the Garvey set. But you also have the Pan-African socialists. That would be more of the Stokely Carmichael, who's a hero of mine. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, he was a socialist, as was W.E.B. Du Bois. What's the difference between the socialists and the nationalists? Real simple. Socialism grows out of Marxism, okay, the Communist Manifesto, that says racism was created by capitalists so they could get rich off of blacks. Mm -hmm. In other words, to get paid, we came up with a whole bunch of lies about black people to justify their enslavement. So if you get rid of the capitalism and the greed, you eliminate the racism. We say that's total bullshit. We can say you can get rid of the capitalism all you want. There's no capitalism in China, but there's still racism. Russia is not capitalist. It's one of the most racist countries on earth. You can eliminate the economic system in the all you want. But the social and psychological issue of racism will remain. Why? Because the primary function of racism is not greed. The primary function of racism is white genetic survival. You know, I, I just want to I want to go back to something. You sure. Said. And I'm not married to a white woman, so I don't take anything offensive. But what, see, the, the problem I have is, see, this is the thing, you know, a lot of black people live in the hood, right? Yes, sir. Live in the hood. I live in the Queens Village. My zone school was PS34, Andrew Jackson, the first school in the country. to have Andrew Jackson? Andrew Jackson. The first ah, school he was one country. of the greatest racists of all time. Andrew Jackson. I'm going to have to change that name. He's a school in Queens, the first school to have metal detectors. Yeah, change it to Michael Jackson. At first school level. That's the <laughs> one LL Cool J is sitting outside on one of his uh, album covers. So okay. what most parents did is they worked very hard and tried to put you in the Catholic school, right? Okay. Put me in the Catholic school. Now I'm in a school with, with all Haitians because it was all Haitians in Queens Village. I, I I can tell you every Haitian curse out there. Wow. Kaka Shin, Fukaka, all that. But then, you know, parents save money, put you in a Catholic school, high school. Problem is, is, you know, it's probably seven people, seven black people in each class, right? Okay. In freshman year, sophomore, junior year. So Compared to how many Haitians or white? No, just seven black people. That's everything. Okay. Everything in high gotcha. school. Gotcha. So the people that you fall in love with and that you talk to, might necessarily not be black. a black person. True. So does that at that age of sixteen and seventeen when you're dating, you're not thinking, oh my gosh, I got to get me a black person. You you're thinking, I like this person because she's nice to me. So you think, but at sixteen and seventeen, your core values about race, racism, your people's position in the American social structure have already been formed. Even white research envy says that by the age of four, 
This is coming from America's universities. By the age of four, a child in America not only knows what race is, okay, not thoroughly, but superficially, they have a firm understanding of race and also the level of respect and status that their race is given within the larger social structure. This is coming from America's university. So at four, your child knows that I'm black and black people don't get respect. A white child knows that I'm white no, see, and my I, people I, I, are already I, I, given. I, I kind of disagree with if that. If you a disagree, because then you're going to have so. to explain away the Dow study. Explain away the Dow study. We can go and get 25 black girls and 25 white girls from the schools right here in New York City and give them the black dials, the same Kenneth Clark Dow experiment that was done 60 years ago for the Brown versus Board decision and say, which one is ugly, which one is attractive, and which that. one would you rather be? But, that, but don't you think that's conditioning too? You're not going to instill that in your kids. You're going to teach your kids. You don't have to. The society will do it. So you think society can uh, brainwash your kids better than you? Are you kidding me? We are living in the era of social network. This is the millennial generation. I think, I think in certain experiences, in certain instances, you yes. can. Me and you, I don't think so, because we're too much in our kids' life. So you, you're telling me, right, if my, my son, my black son, right, yes. brings home a white girl, because... How old is he? Not for nothing. He's 13. Yes. Not for nothing. He We live in an area that is predominantly white. Okay. Reason why? Better school system, better education. I got you. A lot safer. So if he brings home a white girl, I should be like, son... We you need to have a conversation. You shouldn't date her. You should date a black person. Yes, black sir. Well, yes, sir. I, I don't agree with that. So and let me know. tell you Wait why. But let me say. He mayonnaise now, but when he go to that HBCU, <laughs> no, see no, that's no, no, but you, let but, him experience what he likes. But I, envy. I don't be the person that says, you can do this. No, you have, have to be the white. person because you have to teach your son loyalty to his community. Mm. European Jews do it. Arabs do it. Chinese do it. East, we're the only people who feel anxious and ambivalent about telling our black boys that you better love and marry a black woman. And you know why we feel ambivalent? Because all of us have been conditioned by church envy to be colorblind. We're constantly told over and over again that it is wrong to be for yourself before you are for anyone else. And that's why Africans are dead last. I don't agree. There's nothing wrong with being loyal to yourself. There's nothing wrong with being loyal to yourself but yes, it's also who you love i can't tell my son who he connects with better can that white woman ever understand your son's struggle fuck no thank you so why would you want him to spend the rest of his life with a woman who can never understand how he feels when the new york city police department pulls him over Dr. Umar, you, you need a woman who can feel you and the only woman on earth who can understand the black man is the black woman and that's why i cannot respect a black man who is not committed to a black woman. That's the greatest symbol of pride in self. I agree with you, but I do think people, you know, fall in love with who they fall in love with. But but better, love is a function of priorities and values. Yes. And you better never get caught with a white woman. Ever. Yeah. <laughs> you can't even you can't even glance at a white woman. Now, now, now since we're on the topic of family, there's a rumor that has to be dispelled. Mm. I'm hearing black people going around saying that slavery destroyed the black family. Nothing could be further from the truth. Slavery didn't destroy the black family. Do you know that we were still getting married through slavery? Mm -hmm. Jumping the broom in secret, mm -hmm. even under punishment of death. We were married during Reconstruction. We were married during civil rights. When do you begin to see the rise of the single parented black female household? 1970. After they killed Dr. King, the United States government said we must neutralize the black power base. And they determined that the black power base was the black family. It was independent black 
skilled men and women who finance King, finance Mr. Garvey, finance Mr. Muhammad, finance SNCC and CORE, the Freedom Riders in the sit-in movement. So they said, if we want to crush the black struggle, we got to crush the black family. So guess what they did in 1970? King dies in 68. In 1970, they came into the black communities and de-industrialized our city centers. In 1970, they started shutting down the factories. Remember, up until the 50s and 60s, you didn't need a college degree to get a decent job. Many of us got grandparents who worked in factories their whole life and lived better lives than we're living now with two and three degrees. They could work in their same neighborhood and everybody worked for the factory. Good retirement, pension, benefits, medical. They started shutting down the factories in 1970 and then they went into the high schools and did what? Started deindustrializing the inner city high schools. Up until 1970, you could graduate from almost any school in New York certified as a plumber, certified as an electrician, certified as a carpenter, auto body, brick mason, a welder. They took all those programs out. These are the skills that pays the bills, gentlemen. As long as you have a skill, you can always feed your family. But if all you got is college degrees, you might end up in an unemployment line. Why? Because the, the skills that we learn in college are not necessarily marketable to other black people. I'm a psychologist. Ain't too many black people running around looking for a psychologist to reveal all the skeletons in their closet. Yeah, you so, rather talk to a white Exactly. Person. So they started sending us to college instead of teaching us how to work with our hands. That was the 70s. That was the economic castration of the black male. Now let's go to 1980. The CIA comes in, cocaine import agency. They drop off crack. So now the unemployed black man who has always been a breadwinner, Envy, even in slavery, we were always the breadwinner. Up until 1970, now the crack comes. You got a decision. I can sell this crack and try to put some food on the table, or I can smoke it to deal with the fact that I'm no longer economically relevant to the black woman. And trauma. let's be clear. The decade of the 70s was the decade of making the black man economically irrelevant to the black woman. We're the only man in America who is out-earned and out-educated by our mates. No other woman in America out-earns and out-educates their mates. And this is not the black woman's problem. I want to be clear. This was systematically done to make us irrelevant to our families. Then the 1990s come, Bill Clinton, Bill Clinton crime bill, mm -hmm. three strikes and you out, mm -hmm. mandatory minimum wages, the Bill Clinton crime bill. Now all those unemployed black men who got caught smoking crack or selling crack now being sent off to jail. And then they also give us the ADHD so that we could dope the kids up with, with the same medicine that sent the father to jail. Then the year 2000 come, George Bush hits us with the what? faith-based initiative. He finds a loophole in federal law that allows you to finance churches. So now the mega churches and the medium-sized churches in the black community, Charlemagne, are being financed by the government. You think it's a coincidence, Envy, that you don't see no major churches involved in the miseducation movement? No major churches involved in the mass incarceration movement? Black no Lives major Matter. churches involved in police genocide? Yeah. No major churches involved in poverty? Where is the black church in 2017 when it comes to black people issues? They're missing in action because they're being paid by the government to stay out of the struggle. And that's why it's called faith-based initiative. Your pastor is the new FBI, FBI. agent. Wow. Where are you going to tell me you're going to be tonight again? <laughs> oh, man, Dr. Umar. Brown Memorial Baptist Church, Brooklyn, New York City. Doors open up at four. Come on out. All children are free. All elders are free. We're going to talk about miseducation, male-female relationships, 
which I might want to touch on for a quick minute. We're going to talk about the upcoming Frederick Douglass Marcus Garvey Academy. I'm still building that school. Mm-hmm. And it's a school in South Carolina I just saw the day before yesterday that mm-hmm. I might grab. Okay. Okay. I you go with that. Yes, sir. No, yes, I'm sir. Serious. So, Where's it at? Uh, I'm going to tell you off there. All right. All right. I do have one quick question sure. you can answer in sure. less than a minute or two. Sure. Um, we had brother Dr. Wesley Muhammad up here. Yes, sir. And uh, he spoke on... I don't want to misquote him, but he said that going to school to get an African studies degree is a waste of time. He was like, you know, why spend that money mm-hmm. when you could just learn that stuff on your own? He said you shouldn't go to school, spend $80,000 to get a degree in African yes, studies. Yes, which, which is a premise I've articulated several times. Okay. I would largely agree with that because I'm one of the first to say that. And that can be true because when you go to college, hearkening back to my previous comment, I wouldn't send a child to college in 2017 unless they can answer three questions or their parents can. Question number one. For example, Envy has a young son growing up. Number one, did you raise your son with the discipline to finish at Hampton Howard or Morehouse without you being in the same house with him? Absolutely. One of the biggest mistakes we make, we don't raise our kids with discipline. The ability to do what needs to be done when it has to be done, Mm. whether you like it or not. If you didn't raise that child with discipline, why are you investing $30,000 a year in a child you know ain't got the discipline to finish? Absolutely. Second question, is your son majoring in a subject that is economically relevant to the society? Mm -hmm. So if you get a PhD in African-American studies, I'm not against it, but you better have a plan for how you're going to be able to use your degree to earn a decent living so you can pay back all that student loan debt that we've been accruing over the past four or five years. Mm -hmm. And then number three, how is your chosen profession going to benefit the black struggle in any way shape or form the child or parent has to answer those three questions for me because remember gentlemen we got over two million african americans with masters and doctorate degrees unemployed in the united states right now in the soup kitchen i'm getting emails from lawyers envy dr johnson i'm a lawyer and i can't find a job a lawyer a black attorney and black attorneys are small compared to the attorneys of other cultures but you know what that's that's when we as people need to start employing them you know, oh, we need to absolutely. That's why we need the own, banks. You know, that's why we need to start employing our own. Yes. Stop looking for other other lawyers to help, but we have to have trust and and hopefully our lawyers can take care of it. I mean, I have two African American attorneys, but no matter what I do, I have two of everything. I have to have one lawyer. You have to double up, yes sir. I have to make sure there's no mistakes. But yes sir. We have to start employing our own. And that's why the bank has to circumvent the church for the most important institution in black our bank. community, a black bank. If you notice white communities, the bank comes in. And then before you know it, they got the school, the hospital, the supermarket, the manufacturing industry. The bank is the center of the white community, not the church. In the black community, it's the church. And why do I have an issue with that? It has nothing to do with religion. It's politics. The church takes from us, but it doesn't give back. It's not an economic recycling engine. We give the black church $14 million every Sunday, Charlemagne. Mm -hmm. $14 million envy every Sunday. If you're giving the black church $14 million nationally every Sunday... How do you explain those schools? How do you explain those jobs? How do you explain those hospitals? That type of money? Black America is the richest black nation on earth. There's only nine nations above us. We're number 10. And all the other nations, none of them are black. So we're the only African population that has the ability to save itself. We all we need. But we choose not to do it. All right. Dr. Umar Johnson. Yes, sir. sir. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, my brother. Dr. Umar be speaking in gold, man. Great conversation as always. All right, it's the Breakfast Club. Good morning.